Welcome to Your Path to Real Wealth, where we explore how to cultivate real wealth, which is so much more than money. It's the sum quality of our values, relationships, health, sense of purpose, time, charitable giving, legacy, and more. Your path to real wealth begins now. Welcome to Your Path to Real Wealth. I'm Benjamin Cummings, and I'm glad to be here with my co-host, Jeff Brimhall. Jeff, do you want to introduce our guest for today? Yeah, we have a great privilege today to have a very talented and accomplished guest with us named Dr. Scott Anderson. I'm going to give a brief bio, but Scott, welcome to the program. Thanks for being on today. Thanks so much to Benjamin and Jeff. You bet. So Dr. Anderson, uh, is just a brief background. He has a bachelor's degree in psychology from the University of Utah and a master's degree in counseling and guidance from Brigham Young University and a PhD in marriage and family therapy also from Brigham Young University. Uh, and he's a clinical member of the American Association of Marriage and Family Therapists. He's taught in the university for over 40 years, and he recently retired as a therapist for the Suncrest Counseling Center. He's been a keynote speaker, and he's spoken all over the world, highly sought after. I, lo I love to hear him speak. I've heard him speak on many occasions. Uh, he's spoken at the National Conference on Addiction and Recovery, the Governor's Conference on Family, and the Freedom Academy, which is a statewide leadership event for youth. He's been married to Angel for 51 years. They have seven kids, 34 grandkids, and six great-grandkids. And for me, most importantly, he's my uncle, which he's a man I've looked up to all my life. So we're very honored to have him on the show. No, no, Jeff, I'm honored to be here and to be with you too. So thanks so much. Thank you for being on. We'd love to have you just give us a brief background on what made you want to be a marriage and family therapist. So picture this, right? Kind of a troubled family, things kind of crazy. One day my dad backed me into a corner and said, if you don't fix our marriage, we're going to get divorced. I was 11. I don't know if youth experiences really transform your lives a lot, but I was involved in relationships from the time I was very young. But I went into pre-med and I loved it. And it was something exciting for me. I still love it deeply. It's my other love. But somehow I didn't know about living within your meaning like you teach now. But I think I figured it out somehow on my own because I truly found purpose in my life, wanted to contribute meaningfully. New relationships were very critical. I wanted to spend my time trying to do what I could to help people strengthen their relationships because the key principle to happiness and ended up doing that and wanted to have some kind of a mix of clinical therapy and university work. So it's kind of what got me started and wow, it's been a great life. I must admit. It's a lot of pressure on an 11 year old boy. Yeah. I didn't know what to do. <laughs> I can tell you that for sure. So maybe tell us a little more now. Yeah, maybe tell us briefly about your career as a counselor. Yeah, love to do that. So for me, a mix was really important of being able to talk about the principles and ideas and theories and do the research part because like Blue Barn Wealth, I love to be based on factual research, the best research we can find and not just be on theoretical basis. So I wanted to keep involved in the research part and finding out because this theory about relationships has really morphed over years of time. Some of the original theories were so destructive to relationships, we look back and they're so embarrassed that they were ever used. 
somehow being involved in that, but then also not just talking about it, but getting right in the clinical trenches, looking in the eyes of people in need and being able to realistically talk about how you apply the thoughts and skills was a perfect balance for me. So 40 years in the university level teaching and 30 years in my clinical practice, for me, it was a perfect balance. And it gave me a chance to really keep growing and try to help others do the same. So that was my hope. Thank you. That's great to know your background. So everything you share today, people can know the level of experience and research and opportunities you've had to help families. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Could you just help set the stage for our listeners about why is it that relationships are so important? Like help paint that picture for us. Yeah, I would love to. Listen to these thoughts. Relationships are seen as the cornerstone of happiness and living a full life. They are absolutely vital to mental and emotional well-being, even survival. Those are research statements from two major universities that aren't just saying that for fun. Actually helping people survive as well as have rich and full lives is really wrapped up in the importance of our relationships. So very significant topic we're talking about. And hopefully we can come up with very practical ideas that might help. So with some of your, with your background and all that you've done over the years, what are some of the most important relationships that you see in someone's life? This question is harder than it would seem. It seems like it would be easier just to list the most significant relationships obvious to us all. But can I say, honestly, every relationship is important. We practice relationship skills in every relationship we have. What we could talk about is which relationships are easy and which relationships are hard. Because easy relationships are more casual, wonderful relationships we have that are kind of, we don't want to say superficial, but not as consistent in our lives. But those relationships play an important role. And we receive wonderful qualities in our life from those relationships too. So which ones are the hardest? The hardest ones are the ones that take the most work and are the most meaningful. Let me just say a sentence and let us think about it. Oftentimes, especially in relationships with parent-child, our most difficult emotions are shared with our safest relationships. I'm going to say that again because I want us to think about it. Our most difficult emotions are shared with our safest relationship. So in parent-child relationships, the hurt and the pain and the struggle and the questions and the worries and concerns are usually poured out on parents. Not that the parents aren't doing their job. It's actually because they are. Or let's talk about partners and marriage and those important relationships. There isn't a relationship in our lives that takes more work, more consistent work than these closest relationships that take everything we have. So which ones are most important? Well, the ones that take the most work are the ones that are most lasting and have the greatest effect in our lives. However, all relationships really matter. And that might seem like a long answer to a simple question, but 
I know people that have had a one minute relationship with someone in their life and it really was transformative. But the ongoing relationships really determine a lot about the quality of our life. So probably too much said, but there you go. Uh, that's Thanks, yeah, Benjamin. that's no, great comments. Yeah, I, I'm still mulling over all that you've said so far, but I, I want to keep going. You know, I, on this idea then of these these meaningful relationships, whether they last a minute or a lifetime, what, what are some of the characteristics that contribute to a meaningful relationship? Wow. <clears throat> so things that make a relationship most meaningful in our lives are ones that are beyond just, uh, let me, let me talk about the levels. Sometimes when we have a relationship or communication with someone, we start talking about things and then we kind of talk about people and then we transform into thoughts and start opening up and talking about our feelings relationships that impact us the most are the ones that go beyond the first areas and get into the deeper areas of life that really impact us and then they're willing to be open and receive and give so open beautiful relationships where we can really receive and give to each other and talk about things that matter deeply. All our research says, this is really significant research out of UCLA, three years of neurological research that says the things that deepen in our minds the most are ones that are laced with emotion, but that deepens our thoughts and our memories so much. So we have an emotional content that connects us. These really have a significant impact long-term in our lives. Kind of a short answer to a very long question. We could talk about that <laughs> forever. Yeah. Yeah. No, this is very good. So maybe help me understand what are, as your people are kind of evaluating their relationships and the quality of those relationships, maybe you could help provide some context then on what are some of the benefits of those strong, healthy relationships versus some of the negative aspects of a difficult or a challenging relationship. Can I tell you how crazy this research is? This is amazing. And it kind of is overwhelming to me the more I read and study it. But literally, benefits of positive relationships include less stress. How does this one? Better healing. In fact, three times more likely to survive surgery if you have a positive relationship, you know, three times more. Wow. It boosts your immune system. It supports healthier behaviors. It gives you a sense of purpose. There we are back to Blue Barn Wealth. I mean, right? It really helps us focus on our purposes. It adds years to your life. It reduces our blood pressure. In fact, Syracuse University said the single biggest predictor of happiness more than business, physical health, wealth, or status, or fame is the quality of our relationships. And one of the reasons for that, physiologically, here we go back to my pre-med work that I love so much. Physiologically, when we have a positive relationship, it releases neuropeptides in our body called oxytocin, which gives us calmness and connectedness. So we actually have a physical, chemical reaction to it. And if we don't have that, Loneliness, less focus, more unhealthy behaviors, sickness more regulated, especially mental and emotional strain. Depression is a consistent outgrowth of lack of connectedness. So 
when we look at the benefits, we realize, okay, these are greatly important in our lives. How can we really build on this idea and make sure we are doing our part to have good, meaningful relationships? I love that. No, this is great. So then I, how do you, how does someone measure the quality of their relationship? How do they tell if they've got a good relationship that's contributing these good benefits or not? Like how, how do they determine that? Well, the easy answer is of course, if it's meeting my needs, that has become the most self-centered, unrealistic approach to relationships. I think I know. Uh, we have music everywhere. I could sing. Maybe that would add to this little podcast. <laughs> but you know, you don't bring me flowers anymore. Who thought up this stupid song? I mean, is this about you meeting my needs? And all I have to do is say, if you're meeting my needs, then I'm okay. Or if you're not bringing me flowers, I'm out of here. That is not a quality relationship. Quality relationships are one that abide, survive. There are times when you really need you the most and are most unlovable. You get a partner that is supportive a parent that is consistent relationships where you can rely on each other in difficult times. It is not a simple answer. We're talking about Benjamin, right? This is a challenge. It is a relationship where we can give deeply of ourselves, even at times when it's not received. And then we stay consistent and committed and we can count on each other. Uh, the kinds of things our society teaches about relationships right now are mostly destructive. I can tell you right now that, I mean, we're in a phase where people believe they shouldn't ever have to have pain and never have to struggle. If that's true, they're never going to reach the depth of relationships they really could because it takes effort and sacrifice and selflessness and work. And when you're willing to do that kind of work, then the benefits are all those we talked about. But sometimes we need to know the skills and ability to be able to do the kind of work we need to do so that we can have the kind of relationships we want to have. Because it's not something we get taught. Both of you are PhDs, right? How many classes did you have on including and, and improving your wonderful relationships in your life when you're going through your financial work, right? We study for years and years and years for our profession. How much do we study for our life quality that gives us the greatest happiness? I don't know. That's a not great point. Right. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, it's not something that we, it's something like these relationships we have are always there, but they're, they often aren't on the intentional side of our efforts and actions and education is I'm hearing part of what you're highlighting is that they deserve more of that forethought, more of that intentionality. Well, I want to, I want to say to you two, how about having a group of people that are so experienced in their field, get together and say, Hey, why don't we have a podcast on relationships to talk about real wealth? Why don't we talk about what really means in a balanced way? Why don't we look at a broader perspective than how many dollars are in your bank account? You are to be honored for saying, guess what? We have to study a broader view of this if we're going to really talk about quality of life. And you're doing what I'm saying is not being done. You're accomplishing this idea that says, no, let's look at a broader perspective about what needs to be. Because if we don't, all the research, and we're not just talking about fun little thought or somebody's nice little idea in a book. The research says we will miss the deepest happiness and quality in our life if we don't look broader than just dollars in the bank account, right? Wow. 
I agree. Thank you. So, I know you do. I applaud you. <laughs> <laughs> so Scott, what advice would you give to someone who's currently in a difficult relationship? It sounds like you've already given some in your last answer, but maybe if you were to speak directly to that, what advice would you give? Okay. How long do you have for this, Jeff? <laughs> I really want to say something about this that I think is significant. Um, if somebody's in a difficult relationship, I would say, welcome to the club. <laughs> if it's a relationship that matters, difficult is part of the process. In fact, we studied 82 happy couples. And you're asking yourselves, why only 82? And you're thinking, maybe they're the only ones that said they were happy. No, that's not it. But we did study 82 happy couples, which we never do. We study couples in trouble all the time and try to find out what makes them struggle. So it was kind of fun to study 82 happy couples. And we went through a specific detailed process with them about the patterns that led to the process that gave them the chance to say they're happy. And the first part of it, the issues were different. Listen to this. The issues specific to each relationship were different, but the pattern was almost identical. And in that kind of research, you both know that that's kind of fun to find a pattern that's very consistent. And the pattern was that the first part of the relationship had ups and downs, but it was mostly up. And it came to kind of a pinnacle where it turned a corner a little bit and the relationship started to decline from attachment to separateness. They really felt kind of disconnected. And the thing that brought that about was being very aware of their dramatic differences in their life. I interviewed probably 200 couples that were about to get married or shortly after they were married and had a chance to talk to them in detail. And how many of them said to me, I've met the perfect partner. We get along so well. We are amazing friends. This is going to be so great. I wanted to shake them and say, what I want you to say is I've met somebody that I'm willing to face life with and go through the struggles of growth and progression and learning that we need to do. And we think we have the staying power. I want you to say that to me. I don't want you to say, oh, it's going to be rosy. Because I want to say to everyone, Welcome to the world. It's not going to be rosy. You take two people from totally different backgrounds and totally different experiences and put them together. And guess what? It's like folding together a stack of cards, but they don't fit. <laughs> we just have a whole different set of beliefs and all that we grow up with. So that decline happened. They felt separate. There was a little bump that said, oh, it doesn't really matter. We're different. And then right after that, in every one of them, they said, yes, it does matter. And these differences are important. And guess what? Every one of them decided. This is 82 happy couples. They said, we made our differences strengths. Can I ask you two, how did they do that? Oh, it just happened. No. It took consistent, hard work, applying really meaningful relationship principles that could help grow through the differences and use them as strengths to each other. Right? So it's a normal pattern to have difficult relationships. But if we learn the appropriate skills and perspectives, I do want to say one person can make a difference in a relationship. One of the most important things I learned in my research and clinical practice is it's a lot better if two are working together, but one person can literally make a difference. I want to share this little thought, just kind of wrapping this idea up. When we have an interaction of any kind with anyone, we think about what happened. We have feelings about what happened, and then we react. What part of that can we change? If we think that what they did created our feelings, and then our actions came from that, 
we don't have much agency. But if we realize what we thought about what they did, created our feelings, then we can make a difference. And literally one of the ways we make a great difference is to realize we can think about things differently, see things differently, try to understand and comprehend people's behavior and their motive and their purpose more completely. And it helps us see things differently. Okay, that's a long answer. But somehow difficult relationships are constant in our lives if they matter. You ask any parent, isn't parenting the sweetest, easiest thing you've ever done? No, paydays are 20 years away. Hang on, <laughs> right? I mean, we kept being told, okay, well, if you just work hard on these principles, then the contention in your family will cease. And it did. As soon as one of them moved out, it got less. <laughs> <laughs> but we learned together and we grew together and it was great. I mean, for four years in a row, my son said, I will stop teasing my sisters as his goal for the year. The next year he would say, really, I'm serious about it. This year and the next year, no, I mean it this year. Well, anyway, then he moved and it got better. <laughs> That's great. Do you have a brief story you can share with us of a couple who is maybe going through one of these hard times? I know you shared that the experience of the 82 couples, but a specific couple that maybe made this transition of their relationship. Jeff, I would love to so much. And this highlights as an important idea. And I've selected this particular one just to highlight an important idea. It's probably a simpler representation of a principle, but I think it will speak to what we want to say. So a couple came in, they'd been married three years. They had a beautiful little baby and they said, we went to get divorced and we have to see a counselor for six hours. Can we do it all today? I said, no, I don't have six hours. I said, we'll do it over the next six weeks sat down with them and interviewed each one individually to try to find out more about their individual lives. As I did, briefly, she was raised in a foreign country. Her dad left the family when her mom was expecting her little brother. She was a year and a half old. They had no money. They had no ability to survive. They took over management of a huge plantation. And every day from when she was two years old on, she remembers standing next to her mom and working 14 hours a day. They worked and struggled and did so much to take care of this massive plantation, all the people, fix all the meals. And then her mom wanted a better life for them. So she left them there doing the plantation when this girl was 14 years old and she ran the place herself with her little brother's help. And mom was gone for two years when she raised enough money to bring him to the United States. Well, in the midst of all that that had gone on, she kind of talked about things. In fact, she said, I broke my arm when I was 11 years old and she pulled her sleeve up and showed me the big dent in her arm. And she said, and I never told anybody. I just wrapped it up and kept working. I mean, this was her life, right? And the more I learned about her life and what she had. So when I was interviewing him, he's talking, he's, I'm the youngest in a family of five. And I was mom's little surprise. And she just doted over me all the time. And she would say to me all the time, oh, if you've got the sniffles, you're probably going to get sick. You better stay home with me, she said, because he, she loved to have me stay home. And it, anyway, it was just this obvious interaction and I got together with them together and they started to talk and they were going on and on about their differences and on and on about this kind of pain and this kind of fight and all that stuff. And I just stopped them and I said, let me just ask you a question. What? And I asked her first, I said, what if I said to you, 
smothery, syrupy kinds of things. Now, let me tell you the first story they told me, and that doesn't make more sense. They said, okay, they got married. It was about a week into their marriage, and he got the snippets, right? And she went out to get breakfast ready, and she walked in the room, and he was in bed. And she said, what's the matter? He said, I'm congested. She said, oh. And she walked out of the room. Well, what's she thinking? He's going to jump up and get going. We're going to go work. This is going to be great. Sniffles. She didn't even, didn't have the capacity to think he was going to stay in bed, right? She had breakfast ready. She came back. He's still in bed. She said, what's the problem? He said, didn't I tell you I'm congested? She said, yeah. What? He said, if I go to work, I might get sick. That's the line that turned their marriage, right? I might get sick. She said, fuck it up, buddy. Get up. And went out angry and hurt. I talked to him about this moment. And I said, what were you thinking? Asked her. I've never been able to rely on anybody. My dad left my family. This guy doesn't love me or get up and work. He doesn't really love me. Now, we sit together and talk. Does that statement about sniffles have anything to do with love? It really didn't. But in her mind, it translated into everything she knew. And she said, no, he doesn't care. That's why she was so angry. I said, what did you think? He said, she wants me for my insurance money. I said, what? Well, she thinks I'm going to get up and go to work. I'm going to get sick. I'm probably going to die. She just married me to collect my insurance. I said, you were in college. How much insurance did you have? He said, I had a $5,000 policy. I said, she's going to bump you off for $5,000. Anyway, the three of us can sit here and say, that's so illogical. But that's not the point. The point was everything in their life had defined these moments where they saw this through their own lens. And their thoughts about it created these incredible feelings. So I finally just said to her, what if I told you his syrupy, smothery stuff he does is love? She said, oh, gag. I still remember saying, oh, gag, that's sick. And she turned to him and honestly asked, that syrupy, smothery stuff is love? He said, it's all I know. I got kind of quiet. And that was my big, tough selling point. I turned to him and I said, what if I told you cold, critical, distant behavior is love? He said, she must love me a lot. <laughs> and then his own words hit the wall and hit his ear. And he had an honest question. I could see it in his eye, an honest question come in his mind. And he turned to her and said, all that cold, critical, distant stuff is love? She broke down and cried. I'd never seen him be weak. She broke down and cried. And finally, after a minute or two, said, it's all I know. And we had a breakthrough. A breakthrough that said, you've got to get out of what you were and become what you can be. You've got to break through your interpretation of others' behaviors and put your own information into their lives and think you're thinking clearly. They're still married and they're doing great. But it took time to say, so what do we do to make this different? How do we break through patterns that have become very destructive? Sure, it did that. But for them, first of all, to say, we have to use a different lens to understand each other so that we can really move forward. And it worked. So there's an example that has been a little tough for me to talk about because 
to watch people progress is an amazing experience. And they did. And thanks for asking. Wow. Thanks for sharing. Does that make sense? Can you see the principles? Completely. Like it, that just illustrates so well what you're trying to convey of the lenses that we bring to relationships and that our intent sometimes can be misinterpreted. The context that we have is different than the other party has. All of it, all in one. Thank you. I, I don't want to detract from the direction we're going, but I'm curious that you mentioned at the beginning that for a long time, some of the approaches to counseling was challenging or, or detrimental. Maybe could you help us understand the types of counseling that is effective at helping people work through and improve their relationships? Like what just kind like of counseling you know. works? Yes. Just like, you know, it has to be really research-based. If it's not, then what we get are theories. And for years and years in my field, there were theories. I'll give you a quick one. Back in the 1980s and 90s, they thought it'd be really cool to make Bataka clubs and bring people in a room and have them let out all their negative emotion. So they would say negative things to each other and hit each other. All it did is absolutely destroy relationships and build negativity and create greater contention. And they left and went and got divorced. It was terrible. We look back at some of the, and that was really a major idea back then. Just to be open and raw honesty is just what, and anyway, we've had lots of theories, but two of our greatest researchers in our field today are John Gottman, who did 30 years of intense research up in Washington, the University of Washington. He has a lab and he brings people in and they wire them up completely. So they get physiological evidence. They get all kinds of evidence. They film everything they do. They, they chart everything they do and they put them in a room in that condition and say, now act normal. Well, good luck to that with wires all over you. But they find out after a while they get used to it and, and they found out things that are true. And one of those things happens to be this pattern. Every time they tried to resolve an unresolved issue, as soon as someone felt misunderstood or criticized, at that moment, something happens to us. It's called, chemically, it's called being flooded. The brainstem in our brain has the ability to flood a chemical through us when we feel threatened at all, and it numbs our frontal lobe to the point we can't think, we can't be logical, and our ethical and moral values go away. So. Once that happens, instead of talking about an issue, when we feel criticized, we start to express contempt, which is attacking each other instead of talking about the topic, right? When contempt comes, then we get defensive, and then pretty soon we stop communicating. He said this pattern, he calls them the four horsemen of the apocalypse. These things are so destructive. In fact, every relationship that lasted had the ability to have at least five positive interactions to every negative because negative interactions have five times the control in a relationship that make the positive ones do. So the first thing we do if a methodology is going to help is break the pattern. One of the best people I know is a lady named Sue Johnson. This has had 30 to 40 hours of research at universities everywhere. It is probably the most substantiated research approach. Emotionally focused therapy is what it's called. And the first thing she says is exactly what Gottman says. You got to break the pattern. But inside of that, she said this. Every person genuinely desires attachment. They really want it. But people go about it in a very different way. And as they draw together to be attached, 
and all of a sudden it's not working and something's not working well, people have a different approach. Some people become aggressive and want to fix it. Some people flee and run away. Okay, we'd been married a little while. My sweetheart and I were having a discussion. Obviously, she started to back away from me and didn't want to talk. So I'm the aggressor, right? I'm let's fix this now because my parents got divorced and I'm not going to do that. And we're going to fix things right now. So I'm literally chasing her around the room. I, we were going slowly, but she kept backing up and I kept walking forward. And she finally locked herself in the bathroom and I knocked and said, can we talk? And she said, no. And I said, when can we talk? And she said, never. And I said, that's a long time. What do you think? She said, we'll see. Anyway, that, we were young marrieds trying to get this pattern set. And I knew I, I had to learn how to slow down and back off and give her some space. And she had to learn how to speed up and be willing. Well, Sue Johnson's research says everybody really wants, and even fleeing behavior is a desire for attachment. When people are afraid of relationships and afraid they're going to fail, I'm going to say this twice. I want us to really think about it. When people are afraid of relationships and think they might fail, and they realize if they fail in a relationship, it will hurt their spouse or their partner or their child. They just pull away. And it looks like, I don't care. I'm disconnected. I'm not. No, it's really an approach to be more attached because what we do out of fear is flee. Hmm. Sometimes out of fear, we do the opposite. We get aggressive and approach. But anyway, she covers all that and says, what we need to do is recognize our pattern and label it. So instead of talking about each other, you just stay here and talk and we, you know, all that. She calls it, she just has them label it. Like the tornado just came into our relationship. When you see the pattern, you label it. Say, okay, the tornado's here. And just like Gottman said, the first thing you have to do is take a time out. Let the chemicals in your brain lead off. It takes 18 minutes, usually, for eight, the chemicals to kind of drift away and then come back. 90, listen to this statistic. We love statistics. 98% of people that try to resolve a conflict when they're flooded consider it to be absolutely unsuccessful. It's a pretty high statistic. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good one. Yeah. Too bad in our financial world, we can't have statistics like that, right? So <laughs> right. really, we have to break up the negative and find a way to interrupt it. And then we have to relabel the challenges we're having as sincerely, just like the couple I told you about. They both wanted connection. But the way they were going about it was totally destructive to each other. And we have to kind of get past that, recognize it, label it. And then the skill set that goes on from there is learning how to connect in a positive way. So those methodologies seem to be the best researched and seem to be helping the most. That's great. That's great. So I, there's a lot of stigma about, or there can be a stigma about going to go see a counselor or or getting help with relationships. If we if we don't have the tools or we don't have the skills, some people maybe resident or uh, some people maybe hesitant to go and seek help. What what are your thoughts on that, and how do they people overcome that? Okay, Benjamin, this is back to an issue we talked about: easy or hard, right? We're all good in easy relationships. We're so good. We can easily say, I have a great relationship in my life. I can talk to everybody anywhere and I get along just fine. But when I try to talk to my kid, I try to talk to my partner, it doesn't always work. Well, we think then I've got the relationship skills I need. I don't need to go get help with this because I know how to do it. It's just 
my partner. It's just this kid of mine. It's just whatever, right? So we kind of have evidence that we're pretty successful at it. And that's true in relationships that don't take the kind of really deep, consistent work to transform them. That kind of skill takes some help. And I'm an honest believer that some of that help is available online. Uh, bibliotherapy is very powerful. There are things we can read that'll help us a lot. I really believe that too. But also sometimes it's great to have a coach and it's great to have a coach that can sit there. But I wanna say a word about counseling. <laughs> you cannot separate yourself from a counseling setting. Your values and who you are interact in a counseling setting because it's so deeply personal. And if you're looking for a counselor that's going to help you coach through what you're dealing with, find someone that's based on good relationship ideas and find someone that's going to support your values and not try to instill their own in a relationship that might be instructed, constructed. That, or destructive, I mean, that part of what we're saying is hard. But just like anything else, if we're trying to find a coach, if we're trying to do that, and we're realizing we need some help in our most important relationships to get the kind of deep skills we have to have, to be able to make them succeed, then we do some research online, we get recommendations, we check out, and you can actually go set up an appointment, sit down with somebody and say, I want to talk to you before I ever make a contract with you and see if this is going to be helpful. Uh, I would deeply suggest because as gently as I can say it, I've been in the counseling profession for a lot of years. And there are counselors that are helpful and those that are not. And so we want to find ones that have important supportive values to your own and then have skills in areas that have are based on good research principles. That's my bias and I just poured it out. <laughs> Thank you so sense. much. This is, this is such valuable information. And we only have a few minutes left with you, uh, Scott. We are, appreciate so much your time. But I want to ask this question about wealth and the impact on relationships. And your experience in working with families, is there, you know, people think if they have more money, that their life is better. And uh, I wondered if from your experience, if you've noticed some kind of a correlation between how much money somebody has and the quality of their relationships. Thanks, Jeff. Not correlated, but interrelated. Maslow says you got to have your basic hierarchy needs met, and that reduces some stress. And it's true that if you have the ability to have some freedom to make choices about the use of your time, that can help a relationship if you choose to use your time to help your relationship. Money can sometimes give us freedom, and it's a wonderful thing, but also impacts relationships in interesting ways. Uh, think about this. Money means control, respect, values, power, unity, adequacy, self-worth, agency, security. You play out so many relationship principles in the area of money. And if you don't have the ability to use money appropriately and discuss it meaningfully, then all those issues can become relationship issues, not just monetary issues. And they can affect your broader relationship. So it's not correlated, but it's interrelated. And wealth helps, money helps to give you freedom, but then it needs to be based on all the other wonderful principles that make relationships 
progress. And then you, if you have freedom with time, maybe you can spend some time building a good relationship on good principles, right? Yeah. We tell, I tell people all the time, what good does it do to have all the money in the world if you don't have good relationships? And that's helpful to hear that, you know, money can make it so you have more time to focus on your relationships, but it's not necessarily going to do the work for you. You still have to do the work. If money made relationships great, then look at all Hollywood and look at all the NBA stars. And anyway, <laughs> we have a lot of people have a lot of wealth and they don't have a lot of good relationships, right? It's, it's, it's a support to, but not the answer to meaningful relationships right yeah scott this has been wonderful thank you for your time and thank you for all all the uh wisdom that you've shared today this is such a treat for us to reflect on all that you've shared i look forward to going back and listening again to this this episode so thank you as we well, uh, i would like to up, say one thing to you benjamin and jeff just quickly yeah the idea of real wealth is really important because it's tied together with the purpose in our lives and our relationships and affects everything else. Uh, this is really an important topic. And I hope that people don't just look at one aspect of it, but they can look more broadly like you're encouraging them to do because that broad view can help life really attain a degree of happiness they might not have otherwise. Well said. Maybe as we conclude, and you've kind of touched on this already throughout, but I'd love to hear your answer to this last question. What is real wealth to you, Scott? I lived in a life when I was younger where I had limited resources financially. And my darling wife said to me, management of resources, the discretionary income we have will determine our quality of life more than the amount of money we have. Let's learn how to use it wisely. So we started with that together, unifying in our efforts, but then built what we've done together. And now to have this week, we were together with all our family and to be with them and see the fact that they love each other so much and enjoy each other. And that we have been able to have a resource of a beautiful home where they can come and be involved and the quality of life has been provided by a balance of all those things has made such a difference. And in doing so, we have included the aspects of health. We try to work hard on that. And I need to say just briefly, I mean, I'm on two nonprofits and we do work later today. We're busy involved with a major nonprofit and we've gone far beyond our family circle to try to make a difference in people's lives in a meaningful way. And that has been and become a theme for our entire family and has really added such a dimension. So all those aspects have really made a difference in real wealth for us. Thanks, Benjamin, for asking. I love it. Scott, thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for joining us. And thank thanks to our listeners for uh, joining us today and tuning in. Until next time, we'll uh, chat again soon. Thank you for listening to Your Path to Real Wealth from Blue Barn Wealth. If you like what you heard, please share it with your friends and click the subscribe button to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and any guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Blue Barn Wealth. 
The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for personalized investment advice. Because everyone's situation is unique, always seek the advice of a qualified financial professional with any questions you may have.